feel like I get to talk here on <clears throat> similar topic to trip from a different angle. Aspiring missionaries and college students serious enough about their faith to come to a conference like this over the Christmas break are the kind of Christians who ask questions like, how do I humble myself? They have read their Bibles. They have sat under faithful preaching. And they have noticed that from beginning to end, God condemns pride. And he commends humility. Zephaniah 2.3, seek humility. Colossians 3.12, put on humility. 1 Peter 3.8, have a humble mind. 1 Peter 5.5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. James 4.10, 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So the kind of Christians who tend to make good missionaries and good pastors and Christian leaders genuinely want to be more humble. So they hear it in the Bible. And so they ask questions like, how do I humble myself? That's a good question. And when we turn to the places in Scripture that talk about self-humbling, what we find is that the answer itself is humbling. So let's look at what, most, what may be the two most instructive passages in the Bible about self-humbling. The first is in Exodus. The second, Philippians. Go first to Exodus. The first mention of humbling in the Bible is Exodus chapter 10 in Egypt with Moses before Pharaoh who purports to be divine. Let me first set the scene with Moses' first encounter with Pharaoh in Exodus 5. It's verses, verses 1 to 2 of Exodus 5. Moses approaches Pharaoh and speaks on God's behalf, and he says, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, God's personal covenantal name, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go. To which Pharaoh replies, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. Mark that. You may not yet know Yahweh, Pharaoh, but just you wait. You will know him, perhaps all too well. And note here, Pharaoh perceives that this is about obedience. He says, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Then, as you know, moving on from Exodus 5, 10 terrible plagues will follow. And Yahweh will make himself known as judge to Pharaoh in Egypt and as savior to his people as he rescues them out of the oppression of the Egyptians. And then fast forward from Exodus 5 to Exodus 9. 
Verse 17, this is just before plague number seven. So six have already humbled Egypt. And God says to Pharaoh, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So in refusing to obey God's voice, Pharaoh, God says, is exalting himself, which is the opposite of humbling oneself. And God makes that explicit then in chapter 10, in this first mention of humbling in the Bible. Exodus chapter 10, verse 3. God says to Pharaoh through Moses, how long will you refuse to humble yourself and let my people go? And this is the first mention of humbling. So let's pull together what we've seen here in Exodus. Though Pharaoh pretends to be divine, the true God and creator speaks to him as a creature and says, obey my voice, let my people go. And God hears Pharaoh's refusal as exalting self and instructs him to humble himself in response to these painful, humbling plagues. That is, obey God. Acknowledge, Pharaoh, that you are not God. He is. We might say that the basic confession of humility is, you are God and I am not. First, God acted. He humbled Pharaoh through plague after plague after plague. And then the question comes to Pharaoh, will you humble yourself? God's humbling you. Will you receive it as humbling? Will you humble yourself? Will you pretend that you are God and challenge or ignore Yahweh? Or will you admit he is God and I'm not and I'll obey? And this is the paradigm that then echoes throughout the scriptures from Exodus 10 on. It's especially thick in 2 Chronicles as the kingdom spirals downward. And it's especially present in the teaching of Jesus in all places. And it's there in the apostles. And it's relevant for us today in the church. God may not confront us with a knock at the door from a prophet like Moses, but God does confront us. He humbles us. He takes the initiative. His humbling hand descends in your life, in the trials that we just talked about. A family member or a brother and sister in Christ confronts you with your sin or sickness in ourselves or in somebody that we love humbles us or death or the loss of a job or a breakup or whatever obstacles you will encounter someday on the mission field or, mark this, the obstacles that you will face on your way to the mission field and you will encounter them. God takes the initiative in humbling us and then the question comes to us, will you humble yourself? Will you receive what God is doing in your discomfort, in your pain, or will you push back and explain it away with modern causality? Humility says, he is God, 
and I am not, and I am happy about that. Uncomfortable and painful as my circumstances are, I receive them as his humbling hand. And that doesn't mean I don't pray for rescue. In fact, praying for rescue can be precisely the kind of self-humbling that we're talking about. So how do I humble myself is a good question for aspiring missionaries and serious college students. And it has a humbling answer. We don't just up and humble ourselves when we're good and ready to do it. We don't take the initiative. Self-humbling is not an achievement. Rather, our self-humbling begins with God's initiative. He takes the first step. He humbles us. And then the question comes, will you receive his humbling as from his hand and humble yourself? Now let's go to Philippians 2 to finish. And the other most instructive passage about self-humbling in the Bible and see it play out in the greatest missionary who ever lived. And he was, he was unique as a missionary. He was the message himself. Let's see it in three steps in Philippians 2. First, he humbled himself as man. To humble himself as man, he first had to become man, which is said to be an emptying of himself. Look at verses 6 and 7 of Philippians 2. Being in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So his emptying of himself was not an emptying of divine attributes as if that was even possible. It was an emptying of privilege or comfort, the privilege of not becoming man and not being subjected to finitude and the pain of human life and the difficulties of living in our foreign world. And Jesus emptying here, Paul says, was not a losing, but a taking. He emptied himself taking the form of a servant. So first, God the Son becomes man. And then, once human, second, Jesus fulfilled the human calling before God. Humility is a creaturely virtue. He humbled himself. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did Jesus' humbling involve? He humbled himself by becoming obedient. We saw with Pharaoh the issue of human obedience to God's will. Jesus, as man, obeyed God. And he was obedient, Paul says, to the point of death. He endured in his obedience. He didn't hit eject when obedience got hard and when it stayed hard for a long time. He obeyed all the way through. And this self-humbling obedience to death went so far, Paul says, as even death on a cross. The most horrible and shameful of public deaths. But then, third and finally, verse 9. This is where humbling 
goes. This is where self-humbling goes in God's world. Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As man, Jesus humbled himself in obedience to the divine will, and he went to the cross, it's a good name for a conference, and God, in his perfect timing, three days later, raised him, and 40 days later, exalted him at his right hand. So let me close with two final words for you as 18 to 25-year-olds at the cross conference. First, your process from cross to actually getting there on the mission field or into the calling to which you aspire on the ground, into some cross-cultural ministry context will likely take longer and it will be more trying and patience testing than you imagine. God means to humble you along the way. And he means that as you seek to become a missionary or move toward whatever calling he seems to be giving you aspirations for, high a calling as it may be, that you learn obedience and learn humility and that you do not, in pride, jettison what he says in Philippians 2, 3 and 4, right before he sings this Christ hymn to celebrate it. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The others you go to reach and the others who can be so frustrating that you're looking to send you and have a different timing in mind. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. And finally, my prayer for you is that God would prepare you ahead of time, daily and weekly, for his many humblings, for your good, before they come. That you would humble yourself daily by sitting under, not over, sitting under his word and bowing before him in prayer. And that you would humble yourself weekly by sitting under faithful preaching and submitting yourself in covenant, committed to a fellowship of a faithful local church. That you would ask God to, to work a posture in your soul through his word, through prayer, through covenant fellowship with his people that is ready to receive and even welcome, painful as it might be, his humbling hand when it descends in your life. Answering God's call to invest your life directly in the Great Commission and in the work of crossing oceans and borders and languages and cultures with the gospel doesn't mean that you will avoid God's humbling hand. It might mean, in God's great mercy, that his humbling hand descends all the more in your life 
Have you read some missionary biographies? Did God spare them from humbling? He did not. Rather, his humbling hand kept them from vanity. It kept them from shallowness. It kept them from being ineffective. It kept them from laboring in vain. Kept them from walking away from Jesus. Kept them from having their life choked out by this present age. God's humbling hand was the painful and merciful means of His grace to sustain and strengthen the souls of His missionaries and in working through them to do His humbling, rescuing work in the lives of those that they were sent to reach. So Father in heaven, I pray for these brothers and sisters in this room. Even now, you have already been at work preparing their souls for your painful and merciful work of humbling that you have to bring in their lives. Probably not a single event. Probably events. And I pray that you would give them grace even now in sitting under your word, in prayer, in the context of the local church to prepare their souls for your humbling hand as it comes. And I pray that they will embrace it, even welcome it, and say, he is God, and I am not, and I am happy about that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.